morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Good, good, yes. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you are using the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 1052, almost at the end. Um, I'm excited. We're starting a new series this morning. and we'll get into that in a minute. But as always, if you have any questions along the way, you can go to slido.com, type in RevCDA in the prompt, and uh, submit your questions. And we'll take a look at those at the end this morning. So let me pray for us, and we will get started. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light into our path, that when we have questions, um, I know I confess, sometimes I think maybe the answers aren't there, but most of the time I'm surprised, and they are. God, you intend for us to learn from it, to grow in it, to be um, encouraged and exhorted and even rebuked by it. And God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving this morning as we begin this discussion of spiritual disciplines, uh, that we would hear your voice. Wherever we're at, whatever our our needs are, whatever concerns our hearts, God, you know what is best for us, and you have a plan for us, and I just pray that we would be uh, open to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Patrick Oden is a theology professor at Fuller Seminary, and a little while ago, he posted this on Twitter. He said, I've been 30 pounds overweight for a while. High blood pressure, too. Decided to join a gym. It's great. I just show up once a week to listen to someone talk about the importance of fitness for an hour and join in singing some rousing cheers about good fitness. I was concerned because a lot of people there don't seem in shape, but I was told that gyms are for the out of shape, not for the fit. Being fit is impossible, I was told, so we show up to encourage one another in the goals, not to expect change. Now, obviously, he is making a comparison about the church, right? We, we often experience church life just like that. We come into a community of God's people, and we hear the promise of the gospel, and, and for, for many of us, hopefully for all of us, we believe it and, are, uh, and experience the grace of God for our lives But then we recognize that there's still a lot of brokenness in our souls. There's a lot of struggle with sin and uh, just selfishness and all these other things that get stirred up and we convince ourselves that like, well, that's just the way it is. And obviously the gym metaphor makes that seem kind of silly. But I like this gym metaphor because this is actually the metaphor that Paul uses in our text this morning. He's going to start talking about growth in godliness, and comparing it to physical exercise. This week, we're beginning an 11-week series uh, called Transformation, and we're going to be talking about spiritual discipline. I want to throw up the artwork from the series here. This is, uh, we designed it this way because of a story that um, uh, Bible scholar Shane Wood tells about a society of acorns who live at the base of an oak tree, And they're doing all their best acorn things. They're trying to live their best acorn life. They have classes for how to get along with other acorns. 
They take um, spa days to shine the tops of their shells. They want to be the best acorns they can possibly be. And one day, this strange traveler falls from the sky. His top is all cracked and he's all dusty and dirty. And he looks at the city of acorns and he points up to the oak tree and he says, you guys, we are that. And the acorns look at him and go, you are crazy. How in the world could we be this oak tree? How in the world could we get to be this oak tree? And the traveler says, I'm not exactly sure, but it has something to do with being buried in the ground and having our heads cracked open. And the rest of the acorns go, that's sick. <laughs> that's crazy. To, be, to do that, we would no longer even be acorns. And this is the big idea that we are going to lean into over the next several weeks. That in Christ, God intends us to be transformed into radically different people than we are today. And he's inviting us to participate in that transformation. And so in our text this morning in 1 Timothy, I want to take a look at three requirements for transformation as we get started. And the first thing I want to take a look at is the idea that transformation requires truth. In verse 7, we read, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. Paul has been talking to Timothy throughout this book about the things that he should be focusing on in his role as a leader in the church at Ephesus. But this counsel can and should be applied to all of us. And he says, don't spend time with pointless and silly myths, but instead concentrate on training. So what's the difference? If you have a, a King James Bible, you'll, you'll read um, the word, don't pay attention to old wives' tales. And at first I thought, well, that's kind of funny. But then I looked up the Greek word, and the Greek word is actually uh, the word that means the characteristics of an elderly woman. Now, I'm not going to <laughs> throw any shade on the elderly women in my life, but we all know what this means, right? If you swallow gum, it will stay in your stomach for seven years. Turns out, not true. You swallow as much gum as you want. <laughs> if you drink coffee, it will stunt your growth. My grandmother started giving me coffee when I was five. I'm bummed about that because I should be like six or eight inches taller than I am. Also, not true. These, these old wives' tales, these silly myths, what does this have to do with transformation? The, the primary thing is that these things, they just aren't true. They're false statements that sound good because they come from people we respect, or maybe they make sense when we first hear them. But usually the truth is a deeper and harder work. Think about any workout gimmick ever. I was perusing old television commercials this week, and I found one where the woman looks at the camera and says, I never thought I'd fit these jeans again. Thanks, thigh master. <laughs> if you know what a thigh master is, that is not how weight loss works. That's not how exercise works. If you really want to be physically fit, we know how to do that, but it's difficult. It takes a plan. Maybe it takes a trainer. 
Maybe it takes a variety of exercise types and rhythms, but sometimes we would rather feel good doing something foolish and silly than put in the hard work of doing what is true. Famously, G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So what are some of the myths of spiritual transformation? I've got three. There's probably more. One is that it just doesn't happen. There is an extreme variety of this kind of wretched sinner theology that just serves to excuse us from growth. And we'll talk a little bit more about that from a in a minute, but if you believe that, you know, you're just never going to be a better person in Christ, well, that's not true. Another myth is that it just happens by itself. Maybe you say, like, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I must be mature and godly. Not necessarily. Third myth might be that it only happens one way. This is the correct church tradition. This is the right discipleship model. This is the only Christian leader that has it right. And if you do it any other way, you're wrong. Now, there are some parameters for spiritual growth, and we're going to be talking about them over the next few weeks, but it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. If we're going to be transformed, we need to be people of the truth. But transformation also requires vision. Look at verse 8 and 9. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. So some people use this verse to say that physical exercise is not worth doing. That's not what Paul is saying here. Also, Paul is a man who traveled thousands of miles around the Roman Empire on foot. I think he was in pretty good shape. But physical fitness is fleeting. You can't out-exercise death. But you can train yourself in godliness, which lasts forever. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus wants us to have a focus not on just this life, but on the life that we will have forever. I turned 40 last year. My wife, Joanna, turned 40 this year. And we've been having some some discussions about that idea. Um, And we've kind of come to realize that the choices that we make now, they're going to have an effect on the kind of people we will be when we're 60, 70, 80 years old. If we want to be a grandma and grandpa that can pick up our grandkids and play with them and run and do things and take trips and go on vacation. What we do with our body now matters. Some of you are in your 20s and you're like, I don't understand. <laughs> I remember that. I, I do. My, my oldest daughter is at, is at Biola right now. She just went to college and she, she goes to bed at like 8 o'clock at night and she's like, every other kid in this school stays up till midnight and I don't know how to, and they, I don't know how to do it. It's like, God bless you, child. <laughs> when you're young, you can do that sort of thing. But when you get older, things change. And so... For my wife and I, we're trying to make decisions about our diet and about our exercise and about our habits that will set us up for success 
in 30 years, in 40 years, should we be given those years? And still, our bodies are wasting away. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Physical exercise is worth something, but training in godliness is worth an eternal reward. And this is really something that is important to grasp about spiritual transformation. We are supposed to become better people. I grew up hearing a lot about how sinful people are and how wicked the human heart is and how we can't even know how terrible we are. And that's totally true without Jesus. When Jesus comes into the picture, when Jesus saves you out of sin and death and darkness and gives you his Holy Spirit and transforms you into a new creation, things change. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul says that we are being transformed into something new and beautiful. God's intention for his people is that we should be rescued by Jesus from sin and death, born again by the Spirit of God living inside of us, and then be on a trajectory of increasing Christ-likeness as we partner with the Holy Spirit in the work of transformation. And if today you are someone that believes that because you have been saved by the grace of God, you are just a worthless sinner that's being dragged to heaven, you need to stop believing that. God's grace to you is expressed in you as he transforms you. One of my mentors is a theologian named Gary Brashears. Some of you guys were at Men's Roundup last weekend and you heard him talk about demons, which was awesome. But he said to me once, I'm much holier than I was when I was young. He's in his late 70s. And it honestly shocked me. It was the first person I had ever heard say anything like that. Because I grew up believing that if you're a good Christian, you had to be constantly talking about how terrible you are. And we need to be honest about our our spiritual state. Oftentimes we need to be confessing sin and and looking at the brokenness of our souls and holding it out to the light of Jesus and the community and, and working through it. But in that moment, Gary was being honest. He wasn't bragging either. He was glorifying God for his transformation over the span of decades of walking with Jesus. He was a better human being than he was when he got saved because the Spirit of God had transformed his heart. And this is where we need to have vision. And this is really important for us to grasp. If we are going to take transformation seriously, we have to have vision for what transformation brings. Godliness is good for us now, and forever. Becoming more like Jesus is becoming more our true selves. It's becoming more the person that you really want to be. All of your deepest desires, if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, are oriented towards holiness. Now, it may not feel easy. Your, your most, the desires that live at the top of your mind may be contra to those things, But deep down, if you've been transformed by the Holy Spirit, what you want is what God wants for you. And we have to believe that that is a good thing. 
when I was a teenager, I practiced my electric guitar a lot because I wanted to be a rock star. Didn't work. <laughs> I tried. But imagine, it is funny. <laughs> but imagine if, when I was 13 years old, a record label came to me and said, hey kid, if you just promise to keep practicing, when you're 21, I guarantee we, we will sign you to a label and promote your music and send you on tour. Now, the motivation for my practice completely changed. It's not some random possibility that I'm hoped for. It's a guarantee. And this is what our vision needs to look like when we think about transformation, is that Jesus has guaranteed that he will transform us into his image. Why is this important? Because over the next several weeks, we're actually going to be doing these practices together in our gospel communities. And this is another plug for gospel community. If you are a part of our church community and you're not engaged in a gospel community, you need to be. This is, the, the gathering is a beautiful thing. It is, a, uh, it is actually a spiritual discipline. And we're going to talk about it next week and what, what this thing does to shape us. But the real work of pursuing Jesus happens in relational connection with other people. And so we're going to be getting together in our gospel communities and talking through these spiritual disciplines, these practices. And if you lose sight of the vision of the promise to become like Jesus, you will do one of two things. You will fall into legalism or despair. You will fall into legalism because you're going, to be, you're going to be so good at this discipline thing. You're going to check all the boxes and you're going to do all the things and you're going to report back every week and be like, I nailed it. And you're going to get proud. And you're going to be like, oh, you guys, you're not quite as holy as I am because I did the things and you didn't do the things and you're struggling. Or you're going to fall into despair because each week your gospel community leader is going to be like, so how did it go? And you're going to be like, it didn't. And I'm such a bad person and I'm so ashamed and I'm so terrible and I'm not like these people and I'm, why am I even here? And you will believe the lie that you need to act a certain way in order to make God happy with you or to show other people that you measure up to some standard. And that is not the gospel of grace. That is death. The vision of transformation that we need to hold on tightly is the promise that Jesus is doing the work in you. And that he wants you to be transformed. Thirdly, Transformation requires work, verse 10. For this reason, we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul's language here shows us that the, the reality that we see all over the New Testament, that our salvation is 100% from God and we also work. Do we work in order to be saved? No, we work because we have been saved. Donald Whitney writes, if you are a Christian, two people live in your body, you and the Holy Spirit. The work of transformation that goes on in our lives is by the Holy Spirit in cooperation with our own heart, which has been made alive by his grace. Famously, Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed 
to earning. We cannot earn a place in God's family. Our salvation is a gift. But when we are placed in God's family, we are asked to participate in the kind of life that is distinctive of God's family. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul finishes this amazing poem explaining how Jesus lowered himself. He took on a human body. He died on the cross. He, He suffered on our behalf, and he is exalted to the highest position over the whole cosmos. And then he says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purposes. So is it us or is it God? Well, it's both. Growing up, I heard uh, our pastor say this a lot, you can't steer a parked car. Right? We can be given everything that we need to pursue godliness, but if we don't take the steps the beautiful gift of free will that we've been given by God is such that we don't have to be transformed. We don't have to be changed. We don't have to mature in Christ-likeness if we just don't want to. There are real tangible fruits that come from practicing spiritual discipline, and you won't experience those fruits if you don't do it. It's not hard. It's just just what the reality is, right? Paul says it's work. The word labor here means hard work or toil. The first house we owned was in Post Falls, and we installed in-ground sprinklers there. And if any of you live in Post Falls, you know that there is an eighth of an inch of dirt, and then it's just rocks all the way down. And we did it by hand. We dug and chiseled, and and, you know the shovel's going down, and sparks are flying off of it because it's just awful. It's work. This is what this word means. We labor. But we strive. David Hebert says the picture of this word is that the, is the athlete putting in the last ounce of his energy into the race in order to victoriously reach the goal. I try to go to the gym. Uh, I'm not a very good gym person. But I know that when I get tired... With the reps, is when I need to do a few more, right? About, about the time that I'm like, yeah, that's enough. If I'm doing it right, I have to keep going. I have to squeeze that last little bit out. That's what it means to strive, to work hard, to push forward. Throughout this series, you are going to be challenged. There will be some practices, I'm assuming, that you won't like. Some you think are important or don't matter or are optional. And I I will tell you, I think the same things, and we are wrong. (laughs) Donald Whitney again says, I will maintain that the only road to Christian maturity and godliness passes through the practice of the spiritual disciplines. For those of you Mandalorian fans, this is the way. So I want to talk a little bit about what, we're, what we can call and what Christians historically have called the means of grace. How does this transformation actually work? Uh, 
Uh, Dallas Willard, again, has a really helpful paradigm in his book, Renovation of the Heart. And if you're, a, if you're a reader, it's kind of a heady book, but it's really, really good. I recommend it highly. He talks about vision, intention, and means. When he says vision, he says that if you're going to change, you have to have a vision to see a preferable future. Imagine learning a second language. In the American context, many times we have to learn a second language in school, and we have to take two years of Spanish or French or whatever. And and we do that, and, and sometimes people do well, and other times people don't do well, and almost everybody has a story of like, yeah, I kind of remember three words from high school, but... If you live in a non-English speaking country, you're going to learn how to speak English. And the reason you're going to learn how to speak English is because of all of the doors that will open for you when you learn English. You're going to have a vision for the kind of life that you will live when you accomplish this goal. For the average American high schooler, a second language is just either a fun thing to do or a boring subject that they have to take to graduate because we don't have a vision for it. To be transformed into Christ-likeness, you need to really understand the benefits of becoming more like Jesus. And they are many. Willard says the second thing is intention. You have to choose to pursue change. Imagine the language learner going, you know, it'd be really great to learn another language someday. I hope that happens. And just kind of going through life, man, I'd still really like to learn a language. See, this is a matter of the heart or the will. You have to make the conscious decision that you are going to act on the vision of a better future, a more holy future. And then the third thing Willard says is is means. These are the things that you do in order to carry out your intention to pursue your vision. You sign up for Rosetta Stone, or you buy language books, or you immerse yourself in the culture that speaks the language you want to learn. You actually do the things, the practical things that are going to bring about the change. John Wesley wrote several hundred years ago, by means of grace, I understand outward signs, words, or actions ordained of God and appointed for this end to be the ordinary channels whereby he might convey to men preventing, justifying, or sanctifying grace. What, was, what Wesley's saying here is that spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness only works because the means that we have been given for that transformation are infused with the power of God's grace. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification, through the process of becoming holy, by the Spirit, and through belief in the truth. This process of walking this road with Jesus and becoming more and more like him is the way that we are saved. But we still need to do these things. Wesley calls them ordinary channels. And this is, this is the challenging thing is the reality is God could make you holy in a moment. He could speak the word and mature you in an instant. God can do whatever he wants but what he usually wants is to empower your growth and holiness by the Spirit's work in the means of grace. He wants you to take charge of your life in that way. Not apart from him, but through him. He's not raising children to not be capable on their own. 
The Spirit of God in us invites us to grow. But because he loves us and cares about us, he wants us to take those steps with him. And these are going to be the things that this series is focusing on. And just a word, if you're, if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is a pretty dead end for you. You can do all these practices, but they are fairly meaningless. We're going to talk about fasting in a few weeks. And you can fast and, you know, you could teach your body to, uh, you know, feed off of ketones and, and work autophagy and all the silly things that, that fasting is supposed to do for you. But you're not going to be transformed into Christ-likeness if you don't know Christ. The power of these disciplines comes from the grace of God that is given to the one that submits their life to Jesus. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you can do that today. You can say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be changed. I want my life to be different. And God will pour out his grace on you because it's a free gift for everyone that comes to him. So over the next 10 weeks, we're going to talk about the spiritual gym, the routines, the equipment, the means that God has given us in his word for becoming transformed people. And this is what my heart for us as a community is. This is what my heart for myself is. Tyler Statton in his book on prayer says, most of us get about knee deep in the Christian life, discovering that the water feels fine and stop there. We never swim in the depths of the divine intimacy Jesus won for us. I don't, I don't want to be somebody that settles. I don't want to stop in the shallow end and with my floaties on and splash around. I'm a long way from the other end of the pool, but I want to keep swimming. I want us to keep swimming together. So here's the plan. Next week, we're going to talk about corporate worship. We're going to talk about what this is as a discipline and why it matters. We're going to talk about gospel community after that. Why actually getting deep relational connection with others is important. We're going to talk about rhythms of prayer, having practices in your life that you go back to continually. We're going to talk about continual prayer and kind of investigate that whole pray without ceasing thing. We're going to talk about getting into the scriptures, reading, studying your Bible. And we're going to talk about getting the scriptures into you, meditating and memorizing it. We're going to talk about Sabbath, rest, fasting, everybody's favorite. We're going to talk about silence and solitude and simplicity and generosity. Now, you might be saying like, well, what about this one? And what about this one? There's a lot. We could talk about other ones. We, we pick these. <laughs> if you don't like that, it's Brian's fault. <laughs> I'm excited. I hope you're excited as we lean into the grace of God that he has provided for us, the means that he has orchestrated and taught us in his word to be transformed. I hope you have a vision for saying like, man, there are things about my life that are broken and I don't like that. I want to be more like Jesus. And I hope this is a season where you can say, and I'm going to do the things that God calls me to do to take that step in that direction. I believe that he's going to meet us in that intention and that he's going to do amazing things in our community. Let's do some Q&R.
Do we have them up on the screen or no? No? Okay. So I have next week. <laughs> okay. Cool. If transformation is possible, why isn't perfection? Is God limited by sin or is he only willing to take us so far? <laughs> you insert option three. I know there is one. <sighs> yeah, this is such a good question. I've been wrestling with stuff like this for a while. And perfection is possible one day, right? John says that we will be perfect when we see him because we will be like him. We will be transformed fully one day. This body of sin and death will be all gone and holiness will be the only thing left. There are some traditions, the Wesleyan tradition, John Wesley, I quoted him, there, there are some streams of the Wesleyan tradition that would say, actually, perfection is possible. You can continue down this road of sanctification in this life and become sinless. I'm not sure that that's true. I, I think scripture sh shows us, even in the Apostle Paul's life, who was one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, that he is still struggling with sin even at the end of his life. I think one of the things that transformation does for us is it opens up new windows in our souls to say, oh, I didn't realize that was a problem. So no, God isn't limited by sin. I think, I think the limiting factor in our process of Christ-likeness is us. The plan is laid out for us. The, the, the things that we're called to walk in are there. And it's, it's my lack of self-control, it's my selfishness, it's my laziness that prevent me from being holy. And if you, if you meet men and women, usually they are very old, who have been walking down this path for decades and decades, putting... Um, their whole life's focus onto pursuing Christ. They're pretty different people. Like you get to know somebody who is just really, really committed to following Jesus. And it's pretty impressive how humble they are, how kind they are, how wise they seem to be. So I would encourage us uh, not to look for perfection, whether or not we can get there, but to look for growth. Because wherever we're at, uh, I'm going to say we can all be more like Jesus. And that's probably a lifelong pursuit. It's a good question. We're going to take communion. And we're going to talk about it more next week. But turns out, this is one of the means of grace. <laughs> Jesus says in John 6, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me.
Now, there's a lot of disagreement about what exactly Jesus means here and how it relates to this table. But I believe that when we take the bread and the cup, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, when we remember our allegiance to him, our dependence on him, and our union with him, God's grace for us is present in a special way. That doesn't mean we are apart from God's grace if we miss a Sunday or don't take communion or whatever, but I think God's grace is infused in these means, and this is one of them. And if you're a Christian here this morning, if you've given your life over to Jesus, I want to invite you up here to participate in this means of grace.